0: The election of Donald Trump six long years ago began an unimaginable period in our history when the United States was led for the first time by a president who neither knew nor subscribed to the fundamental tenets of our Constitution and frequently acted to undermine them. So write Peter Baker and Susan Glasser in their new book, The Divider. It may be the most comprehensive account yet of Trump's presidency, the zigzags in policy, the clashes and infighting among his aides, the incessant to use the power of his office, not to advance policies in the national interest, but to benefit his own personal and political interests. We'll talk to Baker and Glasser about what they've learned, including their account of Trump's still puzzling relationship with a scary autocrat very much dominating the world stage, Russian President Vladimir Putin, on this episode of Skullduggery.
1: I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United
0: States. and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend
2: the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God.
3: So help me God. So help me God. So
2: help me God.
0: I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
4: I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief
2: of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United.
0: So the book by uh, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser is masterful. it is uh, it, it is so well reported, so authoritative. A lot of Trump books we kind of we've read them, we kind of know the gist, but to see it all laid out, you know, chapter and verse year by year, it's pretty impressive. A lot to talk to them about, but I'm sorry, I just gotta start with what I think is. The most, you know, the biggest story at the moment and it does interact uh, with Trump quite a bit and that's Vladimir Putin Uh, As we speak today, he has just formally announced the annexation Of the Donetsk and Luhansk and other territories in the east as part of the Russian Federation People who live in those uh, territories are becoming our citizens forever Putin said we call on the Kiev regime to immediately cease fighting. and end all military action. He also said, and this is the truly scary part, that Russia would view any attack on those regions, and they are, you know, the, the regions being fought over right now, by the ukrainians with american weapons as an act of aggression against its sovereign territory and russia wouldn't hesitate to use all means available in retaliation a reference to russia's nuclear arsenal i don't know we've uh, you know i think you almost have to go back to the cuban missile crisis to imagine a moment when people are as jittery as they are or should be right now about what Putin is doing.
4: Yeah, it's worth pointing out that, you know, he talks about any attack on our sovereign territory including those regions in Ukraine that he just seized would be an attack on Russia. But Ukraine already occupies uh, a significant amount of that that territory. So, look, this puts Biden in an extremely difficult uh, position because the question is, what does the United States and what does the West do about it? I don't think (laughs) there's a good answer for that. There's (laughs) not there's not much. I mean, what what Biden spoke today, he said, we will not be intimidated by Putin. He said that uh, those countries that uh, are supporting uh, the Russians in this action will also be subject to sanctions. I think the most important thing he said was to reinforce the idea that any attack in any way on a NATO country would be met with a very strong and united uh, response. And so what he is trying to do here is is, is draw those red lines more firmly uh, so that Putin understands where the limits are here. But, you know, Putin has this paranoid mindset about the West and in particular the United States. Um, and it seems fairly clear that a significant portion of his country right now share some of those same uh, grievances it is i think also maybe the case that after he initiated this mobilization, mobilization yeah. of 300,000 russians to, uh, to 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 go to battle in in ukraine there was a pretty significant rebellion against that including including russian men uh, trying to leave the country and protests taking part in some of the more far-flung parts of, of Russia, including Chechnya and, and Dagestan, those areas which have been both subjugated by the Russians for centuries and also have been fairly restive. And he may be trying to divert attention um, from that brewing problem for him. What a better way uh, to deal with those domestic issues you know, than to attack the great Satan as he basically called the United States.
0: Yeah, he said, uh, yeah, the repression of freedom is taking on the outlines of a reverse religion of real Satanism, Putin said in his speech.
2: Meanwhile, in domestic American politics, this is getting next to no attention. The The general American public may be concerned about this, but you don't see the kind of classic partisan divide. You're not seeing a lot of Republican leaders attacking Biden for the way he's handling this crisis. It's a, a kind of potentially a rare moment of I'm not going to say unanimity, but it's a rare moment when Biden's critics are holding their tongues, possibly because of the seriousness of the situation.
4: Yeah, possibly because of the seriousness of the situation. But I also see maybe a more opportunistic uh, or cynical motive here. Uh, Isakoff mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis, and not to be crassly political here, but we are 35 days away, as we record this on Friday, from the midterm elections. And some political history nerds uh, may remember that JFK did actually pretty well in the 1962 midterm elections uh, and the Democrats gained seats. Why was that? One reason his popularity raisings were already pretty high, much higher uh, than Biden's are now, but they soared after the Cuban missile crisis and his handling of that. So, you know, they could be playing with fire if they attack Biden at a moment like this.
0: Yeah. So Biden should, like, announce a blockade of Russia,
4: I guess. Well, it'll I, you know, that's not going to happen, but it will be interesting to see uh, yeah, I, like, how he what handles are they, this. What
0: are the consequences they are warning the Russians about if they use uh, nukes in, um, in Ukraine? We don't know, um, but it's a good question um, we'll want to put to our guests. And we are particularly fortunate to have them. Peter Baker course is the white house correspondent for the new york times susan glasser is the washington correspondent for the new yorker um but not only have they written this great book about trump they also uh, worked in moscow and uh, interviewed vladimir putin himself uh, as uh, co-bureau chiefs for the washington post in the early 2000s so um they are as good a guess as anybody to discuss what Putin is up to a lot to talk to them about. So let's get to it. We now have with us Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, authors of the new book, The Divider Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. Susan and Peter, welcome back to Skullduggery.
3: Hey, it's great to be with you, Mike.
0: Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. You've both been on individually before. This is your first time together. So we are honored uh, to have you. But look, there's so much to talk about in your book and Trump's presidency. But I got to start out with... I guess a figure who looms large in your book and is um, kind of frightening all of us in the moment, and that's Vladimir Putin. You both served in Moscow as uh, correspondents for the Washington Post. That was early on, I believe, in Putin's tenure. Today, he formally announced the annexation of the territories in Ukraine and gave this just incredible tirade about. uh, the West, the Satanism of the West, and its uh, racism, and its colonialism, and ended with a pretty scary, I don't know if he ended it, but he certainly included in talking about the role of nuclear weapons in war, describing the West. I'm reading from the Times account right now as deceitful and hypocritical through and through. Putin noted the United States was the only country to have used nuclear weapons in war. He then added, by the way, they created a precedent on a scale of zero to 10 at the moment. Uh, 10 being uh, the end of Dr. Strangelove with all nuclear bombs going <laughs> off. And zero is this is all going to blow over and it's just bluster. Where are you guys?
3: Yeah, we're not in the all just going to blow over. It's just bluster uh, place, I'm afraid. Look, this is the scariest moment I can think of in the the kind of post-Cold War era when it comes to dealings between the United States and Russia. and. You know there is this argument that you can't just dismiss out of hand that Putin believing he's at war with us in the end ultimately it doesn't matter whether we also agree that we're at war but that it's happening and I I think that you know everything that's gone on since the invasion of Ukraine in February should have been a much bigger deal in the United States than it has been you know this is the europe blinking red crisis and the u.s is basically funding a proxy war against russia and it's not clear where it's going
0: and i guess the question is what is the proper u.s response and peter you're covering the white house at the moment they have to have been you know gaming all the horrible scenarios out at the moment. And I guess Jake Sullivan the other day was on the Sunday talk shows talking about warning the Russians about the catastrophic consequences of using nuclear weapons. What are those catastrophic consequences?
1: Oh, my God, there'd be so many. It's hard to even uh, map them out. And of course, they don't want to map them out because they don't want They want to leave a sort of strategic ambiguity, use the phrase that diplomats use. But to your question, I asked the exact same question of White House and administration officials recently on that scale of one to 10. And I got anywhere between a four and a six. So like, You know, on the one hand, it's not a 10. That's a good thing. Six sounds pretty high to me. I was going to say, that's what I felt like. I felt like the person was trying to reassure us that six wasn't that bad. And I was thinking, well, for nuclear war, six sounds really high. Even four sounds really high. So I, I think that it's scary. Now, look, what they would tell you is there's no evidence they've seen in intelligence that the Russians are making a preparation to actually use nuclear weapons. And that they point out that when Putin talks about nuclear weapons, it often seems to be when he's at his weakest. When he's trying to remind the rest of the world, hey, guys, we are a superpower. We can do enormous damage. Don't assume we're weak just because we've lost so badly on the conventional battlefield. Their hope is is that he is still a rational enough actor that that doesn't I mean he would actually use them, and that he's trying to scare the bejeebers out of people, but it's succeeding. he is scaring a lot of people, and, they sh- and he should, because to sort of casually cavalierly rattle that nuclear saber is just is just, you know, something we haven't seen, as Susan said in a generation.
4: The strategy from the beginning of this war, Susan and Peter, has been to fight the war, to give as much support as possible to Ukraine without escalating to a point where it might trigger. Putin to do something catastrophic. And, you know, and that is the reason why we've made the distinction between offensive and defensive weapons, even though that distinction can be a little blurry. We haven't sent fighter jets in there and we haven't done certain other things. Is that still the, the calculation? And how difficult is that to maintain?
3: I'm so glad you asked this question, Dan, because going forward, it's going to be a lot harder to sustain this argument. Because why is Putin doing this right now? He's not escalating because of a new weapon system that the United States gave to Ukraine. He's escalating because Ukraine is kicking Russia's ass on the battlefield. And that was not part of the plan, according to Vladimir Putin. And the successful counteroffensive in Kherson, which continues, uh, and in fact, the Russian mobilization is just getting underway of hundreds of thousands of new troops, but at the same time, Russia's being very much pressed on the battlefield. That is the specific trigger and cause for why Putin has begun to reintroduce this kind of nuclear saber rattling into the dialogue. It's the reason that he mobilized Russian society and uh, Russian conscription. It's uh, a reason for what we're seeing right now. And so, again, I think that... um, You know, for people who've been pushing Biden and pushing Washington to supply more capability more quickly and arguing that the only outcome here that can work is actually just to defeat Russia on the battlefield, you know, that it's not about calibrating this or that weapon system, there's a certain argument to be made for that logic. Now that we see what Putin is actually responding to, you know, that that there was a sort of angels dancing on the head of a pin quality to some of the early debates in the Biden administration about, well, should we ship this weapon system and not that? Or what about the fighter jets in Poland? And, you know, really, it seems to be that Putin is responding to what's actually happening on the battlefield.
2: So let's turn, if we can then, to, to your book and to Trump. And, you know, one of the more perplexing relationships was the relationship between Trump and Putin. No one ever fully understood it. And to some degree, Trump and his approach to the kind of the traditional Western alliance maybe set the stage for where we are today. How much did Trump set the stage for where we are today, and how much has the kind of the the reunification of the NATO allies in the face of this invasion undone the damage that Trump managed to inflict during his four years?
1: I think you put your finger on something really important here, right? If Putin could have invented an American president who would have done more to tear apart NATO, he couldn't have done better than Donald Trump, because Donald Trump was literally ripping apart the alliance at it seems he didn't believe in it he said again and again it was obsolete it was it was a it was a, a scam he described it as a protection racket and it's not just that he was pressing the allies to do more to uh in the burden sharing that's something other presidents had done Obama did that Bush did that it's that he didn't even believe in it. And he made clear he didn't believe it. He, he was harsher in his attacks on the allies than he was on his adversaries, much harsher with Angela Merkel than he ever was with Vladimir Putin. That's exactly what Putin wanted. So he had to be happy about that. Now, we, we have a scene in our book, The Divider, in which, uh, of course, Trump and Putin meet in Helsinki, his famous meeting, in which Trump says at Putin's side that he believes Putin, in effect, over his own intelligence agencies about the election interference in 2016. And it wasn't just the reporters in the room. Susan was in Helsinki who were shocked. It was Dan Coast back here in Washington. Dan Coast, the former Republican senator, chief of staff to Dan Quayle, Trump appointee who headed the Director of National Intelligence, and with all the secrets that he had access to, he watched what uh, Trump said in Helsinki and thought to himself, and he described to others that maybe Putin really does have something on Trump. What does Russia really have on him that he would ever do something like that, that he would say something like that? And I think that same uncertainty was also true of Trump's relationship when it came to NATO. More times than, than people realize he came close to actually pulling us out of NATO and they had to be stopped or talked out of it by advisors. Imagine what would happen if he had.
4: So you guys as reporters, not as uh, psychologists, but you sort of plumbed the depths of Trump's psyche you know, more thoroughly than any uh, reporters out there with this book. At the end of the day, how do you explain the infatuation with Putin and with other despots and tyrants around the world. I mean, the argument that he respects strong people—that seems a little facile. What, what's it about?
3: Well, it is true, Dan, that you know the words "strong" and "strength" those are the highest compliments in you know the admittedly limited Donald Trump lexicon, right? <laughs> you know, uh, you know. I mean, sure, it's facile, but you know, this is a guy who you know tends to paint in you know only. Uh, black and white and and bold colors. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of subtlety going on here. It's not uh, a, a guy who is into diplomatic finesse, right? Strong men are literally, you know, what Donald Trump admires and what he himself hopes to be. So there is undoubtedly an element of that, and and some of the people who worked with. Trump on the National Security Council. That is, in fact, their preferred explanation that he just, you know, whether it was greeting the leader of Egypt as my favorite dictator when they had a meeting on the sidelines of, uh, you know, a international summit or, uh, you know, waxing poetic about Xi Jinping's ability to, you know, try and execute somebody in the same day if you wanted to. You know, I mean, these are actual things that happen.
4: Or why can't our generals be more like Nazi generals? Yeah,
3: that was, I mean, you want to talk about like something we learned in the course of reporting this book after Trump left office, that certainly ranks up there for four years There was a question of whether it was overheated or too much to sort of draw comparisons between what was happening with Trump and the Republican Party in the 1930s. And yet, in the end, it's Trump himself who's making the Nazi comparisons and the Nazi analogies. And, you know, we we learned that Trump had said to John Kelly, his, his second White House chief of staff, you know, well, you fucking generals, why can't you be more like the German generals? in World War II. And John Kelly, of course, retired four-star Marine General says, what are you talking about? And Trump says, you know, the German generals, they were totally loyal to Hitler. Kelly says, well, no, that's not true. They tried to kill Hitler three times. Uh, Obviously, Donald Trump did not know that. He defined this as personal loyalty. And I think that part of his admiration for these strong men and dictators was the idea that they somehow had authority that Donald Trump didn't have and was raging against the constraints as as he found them in the Oval Office and in the presidency. But in my view, that still is insufficient to explain the Trump-Putin Admiration, which by the way predates Trump's tenure as, as, a, as a public figure or, or political figure. Uh, Donald Trump even wrote Vladimir Putin a mash note when Tr- Putin was named Times Man of the Year, well before he ever became a presidential candidate. Uh, some of it is money, Michael Cohen, uh, you know, who was Trump's fixer and broke with him, you know, said that that was the explanation he favored, that Trump really was obsessed with the Trump Tower project and, you know, the business benefits that he had from basically wealthy Russians who were financing the Trump organization after American banks stopped lending to Donald Trump. But, you know, we don't know. I mean, that's what's infuriating is that even after all those investigations, it was never fully investigated to understand, you know, what was the nature of the Trump financial relationship with Putin. And here we are.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, this is something, you know, I wrestled with when I was writing Russian Roulette with David Korn. And, you know, certainly the fact that he looked at Putin and saw a guy who was running Russia the way he would like to run America, that that was you know, clearly a part of it. There was the simple business explanation is, you know, he'd been trying to get a Trump Tower in Moscow, not just, you know, during the campaign, but going back years earlier and certainly in the aftermath of the Miss Universe contest. And, you know, in Trump's mind, You know the way you get a big real estate deal like that is you go to the top guy and you suck up to him and you flatter him and you know he'll he'll make it happen and that's certainly what he wanted that's one explanation for the the suck ups to putin but This has been investigated now for many years. Um, We've got his tax returns. Authorities have seen them. You know, the Mueller investigation uncovered a lot. Where are you? I'm on whether there
1: is more. And if so, what is it? Well, I do think this is going to be one of these questions that's going to be enduring for a long time to come, by the way. I think there'll be lots of books written about this in 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 the future, like Nixon and Watergate. Plenty of revisionist or new information coming out. 10 years from now, 20 years from now. But I think that I think it's a mix of these things. I do think, you know, it's hard not to think of money as being part of it, as you say. They did, you know, get closed out of American banks, and Russia was a great source of income. The real estate things in Miami with all the rich Russians obviously was pretty profitable for him. I do think it's his father who said that the ultimate compliment to somebody was, you're a killer. And who's the biggest killer in the world right now? Well, you know, yeah. one of them would be Vladimir Putin. But there's also, what's interesting about it, though, Mike, is how much of a one-way street it is, right? In other words, this is not Putin showering Trump with admiration. He doesn't sit there and offer lots of brilliance, uh, you know, uh, flattery of, of Trump. It's quite the opposite. There's a, a scene in our in our book where Trump and Putin are meeting on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Osaka, Japan, And Trump is doing the Trump thing. They're all braggadocio. You know, they love me in Poland. They're going to name a fort after me, Fort Trump. And they love me in Israel. They're going to name a settlement after me, Trump Heights. And Putin has his number, right? He, He looks at him. He says, very droll. He says, well, maybe they should just name all of Israel after you, Donald. And it's this moment of truth, I think, in a way where you see him mocking Trump's pretensions and narcissism, right? He has his number He's not flattering Trump. It's the other way around. Trump is the supplicant to Putin. He's he's trying to, to charm and win over Putin. And Putin is sort of reserved and distant and, and immune in some ways to this charm. So it's still an enduring mystery about what- I, the- I, I got to say, it's a little uh, scary to think that Putin was the sane
0: one in that <laughs> relationship.
3: <laughs> well, but he, I mean, but the truth is, is that Putin is a very different character. There are certain- commonalities that they have in terms of the agendas that they pursued for their countries. Right. But Putin is a a disciplined KGB operative in the Kremlin. Right. And he is a man who, you know, when I met with him in the Kremlin, Uh, The very first meeting he had with American journalists in uh, the spring of 2001, he's the guy who read all the briefing books, who memorized all the facts and figures to spit back at people, uh, you know, who projected the sort of like uh, no blood, but ice water runs in my veins, you know, until you pressed one of his buttons, in which case he, you know, sort of spouted obscenities about the Chechens. You know, Donald Trump is undisciplined he is you know not just ignorant he would never you know take the time to memorize his briefing books he wouldn't even read briefing books he wouldn't listen to briefings he defined the role of president as sitting in the private dining room off the oval office and watching 6 hours of television a day and by the way vladimir putin and his operatives figured out how to penetrate trump's media bubble with their propaganda donald trump was saying unbelievable things that came right from Russian intelligence about Ukraine and about the 2016 election interference from almost the day that he became president. He he had a meeting, he had a meeting in the Oval Office with the then leader of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, in the spring of 2017, in which he told him basically what Vladimir Putin, as if he was a, a marionette puppet. He, he told the leader of Ukraine, well, you're not a real country, Because, uh, you know, they speak Russian there anyways in Crimea, and they'd rather be part of Russia.
4: Given their contrasting characteristics and qualities, it does raise an interesting question, which is which one of them is more dangerous? I mean, that's a rhetorical question, although feel free to answer it if you want to. But I think Victoria had a question.
2: Well, I was going to turn away from the uh, always uh, an, an incredibly fascinating relationship between Trump and Putin, and kind of pivot to the lasting damage that Trump has possibly done on dom- on the domestic policy and on uh, on democracy in the United States. One of the things about your book is is that it's it's as much a story about the people who stopped Trump as it is a story about Trump himself. Yet, over the course of four years, the people. He, he gradually it seems like he slowly but surely refined the, the type of people who he was bringing into the administration so that people were less and less and less able to completely restrain him. I'm wondering at the at the last minute, at the very end, what is it that managed to avert disaster in the uh, in January 6th and on January 20th?
1: Well, that's a great question. And the reason why we did this book, and it is the first book that tries to look at all four years and see how they fit together, is our our premise is, and I think it's right, is that January 6th, is the is not a one-off or an aberration, but really the inexorable culmination of those four years, right? You have to go all the way back to the beginning and look at every day in between to understand how we got there. And how we got there was a, a progression, as you rightly say, between his first generation of advisors who he picks because they have they look like they're from central casting and they have nice titles and names and four-star generals on their epaulets and everything. And he realizes these people actually don't believe and you know they believe in the rule of law and they believe in institutions and they believe in alliances and that's not what trump believes in he, and he's frustrated that they won't do what he wants them to do at least as uh, as, as thoroughly as he wants them to do it over time he gets rid of them right we get rid of jim madison we get rid of john kelly and we get rid of uh, kirsten nielsen and we get rid of all these people who who resist him and in their place increasingly become people who are more deferential Let's say to Trump. And so by the end, you have people like Mark Meadows, who one of our Republican uh, people we interview in the book calls the matador because he's just simply waving people into the Oval Office, no matter how fringe they are. They're coming in to talk about martial law or seizing voting machines. John Kelly, whatever else you think of him, and they're all flawed individuals, but whatever else you think of him, he would have thrown himself in the doorway of the Oval Office to keep people like that out. He might not have stopped January 6th, but he certainly wouldn't have been encouraging it the way that Mark Meadows was. So I do think you see that progression over four years where he has increasingly surrounded himself by people who are willing to go along with him, no matter how radical uh, or potentially unethical or even illegal his ideas are.
4: You all make the point in the book that the internal resistance Was in some ways greater than people realized. Uh, You also make the point, you know, that the uh, the resistance, the resistors were also uh, Trump's greatest uh, enablers. And the book is, you know, replete with examples of cabinet members uh, who were writing resignation letters, planning mass resignations, suicide packs, and in the end, they didn't do it. Or in very very rare instances, they they, uh, did they did not do it. So we've heard. The rationalization, or the, or the real reasons for this, which is that they were would be more effective from the inside, human guardrails, you know, all of those things. But but at the end of the day, you spend so much time reporting on this. How do you see that dynamic, and why, for the most part, the internal resistance did not take those steps?
3: Yeah, I think it it, it is one of the sort of enduring questions, right, about Trump because you have to write if you write a book like this about Trump you are writing about those people surrounding him because without them, they were the facilitators of this presidency in the end, even those who defined their role as resisting some of its extremes. And that is the paradox. Without these people, Donald Trump is just an angry old man shouting at the television in between golf games. And you know, somebody made the point, and this was someone who served in his White House, there are no heroes here. So that's important to say. Uh, the enablers were the resistors, but they were also the facilitators. And even where they were resisting Trump, at times they were also showing him uh, the vulnerabilities, showing him the way forward. And that is one of the you know uncomfortable facts that most of these folks, if you sit down and speak with them, are not willing to reckon with. They're infighting. Also, Donald Trump, it, you know, he has this sort of like. I don't know what you would call it, a certain genius for pitting people against each other, for seeing the benefit in any situation. That's one of the reasons he's interesting because he's not just a divider in terms of dividing Americans or as a political figure. He actually, that's his personality. That's how he operated with his family, with his advisors. And you know, the divide and conquer really was effective at empowering Trump more. So you had in the first group of national security advisors, right? You had Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, Rex Tillerson, and John Kelly, and H.R. McMaster as his second national security advisor. They seemed to be allied when it came to their policy positions, right? They were generally speaking on the same side, trying to stop Trump from blowing up NATO, trying to stop him from withdrawing abruptly from Afghanistan. But they were so busy in a toxic, infighting unlike anything i've ever heard described in the white house and and many white houses and you guys have all covered them too many white houses of course have enormous amounts of infighting they have the state department versus the pentagon the state department versus the white house nothing like this level and hr mcmaster was so busy at feuding with jim mattis and john kelly trump is the winner there trump is the winner there so part of it is that he has a, a knack for surrounding himself around people who blow themselves up or you know play a weekend weekly. But it's also true that that Trump, I think he really did, especially on the national security side, he was pursuing things that were so alarming and so potentially dangerous and so unprecedented by a US president that there was a pretty conscious decision to stick with it and to recognize that there is in fact a huge difference between not just a Jim Mattis, but even a Mark Esper and look at Rick Grinnell or look at the people that that Donald Trump fired Mark Esper and put in after the 2020 election. A virtual unknown, Chris Miller as acting defense secretary, who seemed to be there solely as a yes man to carry out the White House's plans. Cash Patel, a very disruptive uh, and conspiracy minded figure. Uh, Rick Grinnell, the um, ambassador to Germany that Trump sent there with the express purpose of basically insulting the Germans. (laughs) These are a pretty reckless group of figures who in a second Trump term would be the kind of people that he would turn to.
0: You have this uh, delicious metaphor in the book that's gotten some attention. A former <laughs> national delicious security...
3: Not
4: the word. <laughs> <laughs> Well... It's one of Isikoff's favorite it, words, though. One
0: of my favorite words. A senior national security official who regularly observed Trump in the Oval Office compared him to the velociraptors in the movie Jurassic Park that proved capable of learning while hunting their prey. Uh, explain that one a bit. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know the opening the door, Michael. That's the that's the key. When the velociraptors chase the children into the kitchen, right, Peter? Yeah,
1: yeah. The children are hiding in the door, and, and, and they they see you see the velociraptor learn to open the handle, right? That and it's not that Trump is learning about policy. He probably knows no more today about health care policy than he did five years ago or ten years ago. But he has learned how to manipulate the levers of power to achieve what he wants, and that's what the national security advisor, national security official meant. When they told us this, that you know, over time, he has figured out a victorious point in some ways in terms of shedding staff who would resist him and figuring out how to accomplish what he wants. So this book, in some ways, is history, obviously. It's the history of his four-year presidency. But in some ways, it's a prologue. If you want to know what another term would look like, look at the things he wanted to do in our book, but was frustrated and, and uh, unable to do, and assume that he would have a more capable way of doing it in a second term. Right. But, you know, uh, just picking up on the didn't know any more about healthcare
0: policy after his presidency than before, it does uh, underscore another point you make that is one that, frankly, a lot of us observed during the when he was first running for president, which is that he didn't know. Anything about anything? <laughs> I mean, you're right. He did not know that Puerto Rico was part of the United States. Did not know whether Colombia was in North America or South America. Thought Finland was part of Russia and mixed up the Baltics with the Balkans. He got confused about how World War One started. Did not understand the basics of America's vast nuclear arsenal. Did not grasp the concept of constitutional separation of powers. Did not understand how courts worked. How do I declare war? He asked at one point to the alarm of his staff, who realized he was unaware that the Constitution prescribes that. Wrong role for Congress. I mean, it is just staggering that a guy who's essentially an ignoramus was running the country for four years.
3: (laughs) Okay. I have to admit that is actually one of my very favorite paragraphs in the entire uh, 600- (laughs) Well, well,
0: I loved it. It was delicious.
3: Uh, (laughs) Here's the thing, Mike. Here's the thing. Donald Trump Donald Trump, it wasn't just that he didn't know stuff, even though it is amazing the stuff that he didn't know. It's that he didn't care. It's that he didn't care. It's it's the arrogance combined with the ignorance that made Trump such a toxically unfit figure for occupying this role. And, you know, there have been plenty of presidents who came to the role without preparation. Bill Clinton never felt comfortable in foreign affairs really until deep into his second term. Uh, Barack Obama obviously only had a couple of years under his belt in Washington as a junior senator. Presidents can learn on the job. They get the information that they need or they don't get the information that they need. Uh, George W. Bush was obviously not a great student of history or, or really anything else, but the bottom line is that Trump actively was at war with knowledge Facts, uh, information, and expertise. He didn't know what he didn't know and he didn't care to know it. And that, you know, really is is the mind-blowing part to me.
4: And he was, in your portrayal, and, and this is not totally new, he was such a pathological liar. And and you experienced this in your your interviews with him, which you which you write about, that, you know, in in the same sentence, he will lie. Multiple times contradicting himself. <laughs> so what did you make of of the lying and that facet of his psychological profile?
1: Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, like you say, we did two interviews with him in Mar-a-Lago after he left office. And you're right. He like the first thing he told us in the second interview directly contradicted the first thing he told us in the first interview, which was that he was gonna do a PSA for vaccines and that he'd been asked to do it. By the Biden administration, when he didn't do it, and we asked him the second interview, "How come you didn't do it?" He acted like he didn't know what we were talking about. Who 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 told you that? Well, you told us that. Now so he. Um, so did he lie the first time? Did he lie the second time? Did he forget? Did he does he live in his own reality? This is the constant debate of his own team, right? You know how pathological was this? Does he understand the things he's saying are not true? Does he and says them anyway, or does he just completely convince himself of his own reality regardless of facts? And it's and so- by the
4: way, I should point out that that is a that is a question that is clearly a challenge for a lot of prosecutors who yes. are investigating him right now, right? Because yeah. it goes straight to the question of of intent.
1: Exactly, and you're going to find that out for the great book you guys are going to write about this. What did he know? When did he know? And, and he he has successfully avoided that. Because he didn't put things in writing, right? No emails. So it's hard to nail down what he knew when. But like the January 6th committee, I think, did a pretty good job of of bringing people out to show that he was told again and again and again by his own people, not by liberal Democrats, not by the news media, by his own people that he had lost and that there was not, in fact, some great fraud that has stolen the election from him. And he went out and said it anyway. Right. So that does suggest he does know the difference between truth and and fiction, and he's and he just picks fiction. and he how many times did he tell us that Barack Obama was not born in the United States only to simply give up uh, right when he was running for president, He realized it was harmful to and say, "Okay, fine, he was born in the United States. It's intentional. And I do think that it's just, uh, you know, that's the, that's the heart of the Letitia James suit that she just filed, that he invents things to suit his own needs. It's not a 10,000 square foot apartment. It's a 30,000 square foot apartment. It's not a 76-story building. It's an 86-story building or what have you. And he just, if he says it enough times, he thinks other people will believe it. And it's possible if he says it enough times, he starts to believe it. Yeah,
3: I know. But Donald Trump doesn't believe that he has a 30,000 foot apartment. You know, because he knows it's a freaking ten thousand square foot apartment. <laughs> because you know, there's not twenty thousand extra feet for him to walk around. I mean, you know, the, the, Pretty the damn big. He knew he lost <laughs> the election, and the account of that is is over. Overwhelmingly clear and that it was a very.
0: But yet you write, and this probably uh, is a passage that won't go down well in the Twitter verse. Democrats, meanwhile, continued to chase after the fantasy of a knockout punch, a transformative moment when a federal prosecutor's indictment or an eviscerating judge's decision or an embarrassing defeat of one of his protégés would finally shatter Trump's armor.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's not a question of opinion Michael, it hasn't happened. Hasn't happened. In fact, you guys know, you know better than we do. Donald Trump, in some ways, the four-year story of his presidency is is uh, shattering institutions and and norms and constraints that will apply long after Trump has gone from the scene. Impeachment, he's shown, is 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 a hollow threat in this in this age of uh, political polarization. And rather than constraining Donald Trump. Uh, not only did it not constrain Donald Trump, but his the two failed impeachments of Donald Trump have now shown future presidents that they can be much less worried about the threat of being impeached because it's practically speaking impossible to get a Senate majority to vote to convict. Two you know a, exactly a Senate, yeah. and I think you know that this is true of the constant, constant drumbeat of investigations. Uh, you know, Donald Trump's critics were waiting and waiting. For you know this sort of knockout punch, they were waiting for the what people called the jailbreak of Republicans on Capitol Hill. January 6 was the ultimate jailbreak, and it didn't happen. Uh, in fact, 147 House and Senate Republicans voted that same evening to go along with Trump's campaign to stop the certification of the election, uh, even the same day as the Capitol itself was, was stormed.
2: So there are today plenty of pretenders to uh, take on Donald Trump's mantle. There are plenty of Trump wannabes who want to take over. Many of them have many of the same qualities that you've described that Trump has. They, however, also possibly lack the incredible charisma that, that Donald Trump has. Are there any of these, you know, kind of pretenders to the Trump throne out there that you think could exercise the same sort of uh, power that Trump managed to exercise?
1: I think he's, to some extent, sui so generis. I mean, I think there are a lot of ones who would like to and are certainly positioning themselves to. Clearly, DeSantis being the most obvious candidate. And in some ways, by the way, they're taking it even further than Trump did. Remember, uh, DeSantis's stunt recently sending migrants to uh, Martha's Vineyard is something Trump talked about doing, but never actually did. He talked about saying, let's dump them in sanctuary cities, he said. Everybody got all worked up and, and outraged, but he didn't do it. DeSantis has now actually done it. And so I think you see them trying to even out-trump Trump. Having said that, Will they have the same sort of Susan would debate the word charisma? Would they have this he, they have the same sort of appeal to the base in the in the visceral way that he does? A lot of other Republican politicians have tried that so far and failed to mimic his uh connection with that with that part of the party. We'll see. Right now, Deron DeSantis is leading Trump among Florida Republicans. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that much, but it does suggest that there is a possibility that a DeSantis can come along and take the, the Trump mantle, whether it, it may because he steps aside, I don't know that he's had the same kind of qualities that Trump has in his, you know, his 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 uh, natural skill set.
2: The real question is, is that to go kind of loop back to your point that that Trump is sui generis, you don't think then that Trump kind of laid out a roadmap for other people to follow. He's a, a kind of a one off figure in politics. Be clear. I want to say I'm not saying that he's a one off. I do think he laid
1: out a roadmap. I just don't know that anybody else will be quite as successful at it as he is because he has a certain you know, remarkable connection that's hard to see. Like Marco Rubio tried to be Trump. It didn't work. You know, another have tried to be Trump. It just didn't sell. And he has an ability to do that. But Trumpism lives on regardless of him. I think you're right.
0: We've all been uh, obsessing for the last uh, six weeks or more about the the raid at Mar-a-Lago and the classified documents. Um, As the authoritative historians of the Trump presidency at this point, do you folks have a theory as to how those documents ended up there? And did Trump have some interest in particular ones that he then refused to return when the National Archives and the Justice Department first asked him for it. What's your, <laughs> what's your best sense of what to make of, you know, what's what's happened down there?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, Donald Trump is a big believer in the weaponization of information. He was a very interested consumer of certain types of intelligence while denigrating the U.S. intelligence. Uh, agencies overall. He was a very avid consumer, especially of anything that smacked of you know, the kind of knowledge that he could use to have power over somebody else. We know that. We also know that Trump has a you know, very disdainful attitude towards rules and regulations of all kind. Uh, he doesn't think that they apply to him. He also had a very kind of l'état c'est moi philosophy in general when it came to procedures. And, uh, you know, in his view, anything that connected to his presidency was his and his alone. Uh, He didn't care about things like, you know, the federal government has possession of this, that or the other thing. And, you know, I've been amused to watch uh, how much he's clearly personally dictating a lot of his own legal defense in this situation you you know the the phrase absolute right is the tell that Donald Trump is 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 telling his lawyers what to put in there because no lawyer uh would write down Uh, In a legal filing, anything about absolute rights to this and that. And of course, that's one of Donald Trump's favorite phrases to apply to so many areas when he was president that he thought he had the absolute right to have control over. So it's very consistent, this scandal about the classified documents with what we know of Trump, what has not yet emerged and I'm very much looking forward to finding out this, the the answer to your question is whether there was some specific, was it, um, we know there were some fights in the final days of the Trump presidency over declassification of information that might've gone to the origins of some of the investigations of Trump, of both the Russia investigation and other matters. And so Is it related to some specific pile of documents? Is it we know he loved those letters, what he called the love letters between himself and Kim Jong-un? Those were classified. You know, odds are. I I
0: was going to say, you know, that it makes sense to me that he would want to want to have kept those. Of the other documents, the only one that makes sense to me is the Macron document, because the assumption is it's got some dirt, personal dirt on him and that Trump would like to show that to people and, you know. But other than that, I'm I'm just at a loss, you know, as to why he would have cared or looked at or had any plans to do something with some of the other stuff that's been reported.
1: Well, I'm glad you focused on that because I actually think that's the point. We've allowed him to distract us with this question of mental telepathy, declassifying things as if that was really the issue. Yeah. OK, we can have an argument about whether things are classified or not classified, but he wasn't entitled to these documents, whether they were classified or not. They're owned by the government. They're owned by the American people. They do not belong to him. He is not allowed to take them, whether he declassifies them by mental telepathy or not. And he has not explained what he wanted them for, why he needed them, why he wanted them, what purpose he had for them. He has not said, hey, the reason I took them is because of X, Y, or Z. I was going to write a memoir. I was going to I was going to be a diplomat. Nobody knows. He hasn't even- But that run. assumes
0: there was a method
1: to well, the maybe, madness. And and right. I, I just don't know if there was or not. But he's gone you know? to such a length to-, to tell us he didn't have them when he did, it makes it more than like, oh, I just was being careless and I just took stuff with me or I wanted to show them off, right? I mean, if you have your lawyer sign a document saying, no, I don't have any when you know you do,
3: Well, and also they apparently didn't tell the truth after they were called on it originally by the government. That, I think, is significant to the question of Trump and his motivation and what's going on here, because, in fact, there was a months long process of the government trying to get the documents back. Trump is repeatedly giving them some and then pretending like that's all that was given back when it wasn't. And so that suggests that he was more actively trying to keep a hold of these documents for whatever reasons.
4: So you guys have a really intriguing line in, in the epilogue of your book, which is that Trump is both the avatar of Trumpism, but also it's, it's hostage. Explain what you, what you meant by that.
3: You know, it, this is a very interesting example where Trump believed very fervently in a particular political theory of the case right which was that the base the republican base was the key to his power not only in politics but also in washington and that you know these republican senators and congressmen that they would just break with him uh except that they knew that the base was fanatically loyal to him and to him alone and that of course gave them a certain real power over him too, and you know, there's an interesting scene in our book when you know Tucker Carlson is you know fulminating on television after uh, as the Black Lives Matter protests are first breaking out in the in the wake of the George Floyd killing, and you know he's he's going on about how Donald Trump isn't doing enough to stop the wave of lawlessness, lawlessness across the land, and you know T- Tucker Carlson was a power broker with the base in a way that I think Trump was afraid of. And so the specific example in the book that we were talking about had to do with the vaccine. And Donald Trump, right, this is in, it should have been in some ways, right, the something that Trump endlessly bragged about, how it was the fastest ever vaccine. It happened when he was the president. It was an amazing scientific accomplishment. Donald Trump, by the way, not a, an anti-vaxxer uh, when it comes to his own personal health and safety. He was quick to take the vaccine. He just wasn't quick to advertise it. And so in our very first interview with Trump in the spring of 2021, we asked him about this. He said, actually, the Biden administration had asked him to do a public service announcement to try to get through to some of his anti-vax supporters. And Trump told us that he was considering it. Well, of course, seven months later, we come back for our second interview. Trump hasn't done any kind of public service announcement. We asked him, about it. And first of all, it was classic Trump uh, because he said, I don't know what you're talking about. No one ever asked me to do any advertisement. Who told you that? And we said, well, you told us that. So was he lying the first time, the second time? Who knows, right? Very Donald Trump. But what happened in between the two is very instructive because Trump had mentioned the vaccine at one of his rallies and he was booed by his own crowd. And from then on, Donald Trump was not talking about the vaccine, not bragging on it. This is an example, I think, of him being afraid of his own base and letting them lead. And arguably now they're leading him right into QAnonism. Uh, In 2020, he flirted with it. He said, well, they just support me. Uh, I don't know much about it. Now he's openly using their symbols, playing their anthem at his rallies.
4: that That is a great point, Susan. and i I actually don't I can't recall another time when Trump was booed at his own rally. I think that was in Alabama, is that right? Yes that's right. Um, what, what a what an extraordinary moment. And they are leading him down a darker path.
0: Okay. To wrap up, I've got three questions I want to ask on the same uh, zero to 10 scale uh, I used Uh-oh. before about Putin. Those are for me. Uh, and this is uh, starting with, will, on a scale of zero to 10, will Donald Trump be the Republican nominee for president in 2024? Number two, uh, same scale, will he be elected president again and third if he is zero to ten will you write another book about a trump presidency
1: Um, go go for it one of our one of our reviewers wrote they liked the book he just hoped we didn't write a sequel but (laughs) yeah uh, you know i think that one to ten i mean like you know i think if if he runs for the nomination i think he gets it i think that's a you know an eight or nine or something like that because i think that there isn't i mean I don't think there's anybody who could stop him at this point from getting the nomination. Now, being elected is a different thing. Remember, this is the first president since Benjamin Harrison, who lost the popular vote twice. I mean, he really is a weak figure historically, but you know, it's it's conceivable he can still win a general election. It would probably have to be the same kind of through the electoral college system thing again. And it's possible that they're seeding these state houses with people who will be elected secretaries of state, who will find ways to... to you know, uh, run the elections that benefit him. So, in that sense, it's not a zero. I don't know, maybe a f- three, four, five, something like that.
2: I, I, that's pretty scary well, as well. You know five, well, That's, that's yeah. about what the chance of nuclear war is, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> I know. Thank you, Peter. You're assessing nuclear war and Trump returning to office at about the same
1: level. The, the nuclear war assessment was by the biden but anyway yes um i get it um and as for running a seat secret- <laughs>
0: guys um i, I want to thank you it's a um it's a great read and it's also you know the most authoritative account of uh the four years we all live to the book is the divider peter and susan thanks for joining us
1: thanks for having
3: us oh it's great to be with all of you thank you so much